Hello, my friends, Nigel here, and welcome to Backable. This week, Tim is joined by co-host and COO of the Philodomo Group, Alana Harari, to talk opportunity, money, and spending. We discuss what opportunities you should be saying yes to, and more importantly, when it's okay to say no. We also discuss what should you be doing with your money when you start freeing up some of that cash flow, and something we get asked a lot. Where is the balance in taking money out of the business to grow your personal wealth and leaving enough working capital in there to promote growth in the business. It's a really great episode. Hope you enjoy. One of the really great things that happen when we're growing a business is we go from this idea of, I want to say yes to everything. Start a business, you just want to get some money in the door so you can survive basically. The challenge that we've got is just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. There's been a whole lot of commentary around you should niche your business, you should focus on one thing. While there's a lot of truth to some of those statements, a lot of the time it's a rhetoric that's said for small businesses to stay focused. When do we need to swap our mindset around what we should and shouldn't say yes to? And this is a great experience, Lana, that we've particularly had when we were running a smaller business, started to get some traction, and then we were still behaving from a mindset point of view of, we say yes to things, but we actually should say no to things. There are some clients that just don't fit anymore. It's quite personally affronting when you have to understand that for you to grow, you have to start saying no. And it is a huge mindset shift from building it up by yourself with your own money, with your own team, that when you start to realize that by saying no, you actually grow faster. It's a very tough one for business owners that have self-funded or this is their first business or they don't have a lot of experience yet. It's very difficult because it's counterintuitive. I'm not going to say no to any business because it's taken so long to get money in the door, to start becoming successful, all revenues, good revenue, but it's not necessarily that. The wrong client or the wrong opportunity can actually take you off track for years, if not sink the business. And this is something I don't think is discussed very well. We come through this and our whole idea is I need to get more revenue in the door. I need to get more sales. I need to keep growing at whatever cost, whatever it takes. But it's just not right because we got to a point of maybe an example of our company, which is you start to identify your ideal clients, but not just ideal clients by whether you can help them, but whether they match the personality and values of your company. And this is obviously a hell of a lot more prevalent in service-based industries where you have direct contact with the clients. But this was something we learned over and over again by saying yes to the wrong clients way too many times. And it's also that gap between what they pay versus the emotional impact that the wrong client has. So it's really great if you've got a client who might be paying you three or four times what you're used to, at which point, okay, you might say yes to them because the financial benefit is huge. But then you have to start to look at the wrong client in terms of values. And we had a very simple value, which was trust, impact, and motivation. From that very simple three value proposition, we were able to start to weed out the clients because we knew that even if they were paying us three times more, the amount of work that we had to actually put into them And the outcome that we were able to get was never going to be as high as a client who might pay us less, but would be with us for a longer period of time, would make the team happier and would often give us bigger referrals to a wider market. Sometimes, I mean, this same principle works not just for clients, but suppliers. So you might have distributors, you might have wholesalers. This is more getting to that point of not all opportunities, good opportunity. And most businesses that get through that initial stage only sink themselves by going after probably way too much opportunity. The issue is too much opportunity, not not enough. There aren't that many businesses with an entrepreneurial spirit that actually lack opportunity. And as you do get bigger and as you do start to say no, you have to figure out how you can say yes and no, but without losing that excitement over opportunity. Because even when you're busy, you want to be getting opportunity in. You just have to figure out how to make sure it's the right opportunity for your business to grow, not the right opportunity that's going to get me cash quickly so I feel like I'm making money. And that's a huge difference that you do come up against. I think a lot of smaller client experiences, generally this manifests into 
I feel like I'm working harder than I've ever worked before, but I'm actually not making any money. So they're actually increasing the effort. They're increasing the the fixed cost of the business. They're obviously bringing on more people, but they're not making any money. This becomes quite emotionally difficult because you feel like you're finally growing as a company, but there's no tangible impact. This is part of the challenge that smaller businesses have is actually understanding that I'm probably going to outgrow most of the clients that I started the business with. You don't generally keep the same type of client for that business's um, life cycle. There's the infamous version of Tim and I when we first started working together. We were selling social media packages for $125 a week and that was for everything. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, posting every single day. We had to move on from our client base because we were able to grow as a business. And so the clients that were saying yes to $125 a week for all of the things, we couldn't grow with them while still maintaining the growth of the business and the direction that we wanted to go in. And so that's always a difficult one for smaller businesses to understand that just because you're making an amount of money, that yes is always the right answer. Sometimes it's that step back to say, I'm going to lose by saying no, future gain is actually what I'm here for. That's the challenge that we've all got is how do we navigate that process where we're outgrowing clients, we potentially outgrowing the product that we're currently doing because we're evolving. And this is, I think, particularly in that zero to one million type revenue, you can't get hung up on what you thought you were going to be. You have to find that level of detachment if you want to run a business, not be self-employed, that I'm here to service a client and I will be providing whatever they need the most, not, well, that's the product I'm doing. We set it from day one and we're never going to change. That's a business that's going out of business. If you look at any type of company that's had sustained success, look back at where they begun and have a look at their products and services. Not many of them are the same as when they begun. Your favorite story is obviously Nokia. Yeah, they were gumboot manufacturers, but really they were a rubber manufacturing company and they pivoted to technology, which is a massive pivot. And we all know the story of Nokia up until the last sort of 10, 15 years. You would have loved to have been involved with Nokia all through the 90s. They were one of the most dominant brands on the planet and they had to change. They had to change. They had to pivot. There's countless and countless stories around businesses that need to move away from their base product and service in order to keep sustained success or get to the next level. And this is where I think that smaller business doesn't even consider that they may be doing something different because of the technician mindset. Because every time you look at an opportunity, you think, how am I going to do it? Where a business person or an entrepreneur sees the opportunity and says, how do I get people to fulfill that gap? On behalf of my business. So what we're talking about is businesses saying yes to clients, but saying no to a potential opportunity that they believe is outside their business focus. That's the whole, I guess, the difference in this smaller micro business. And we'll, we'll get to the next level, but these micro businesses, are, unless I can personally do it, it's not something we can do. So they're always limited their growth to their ability to personally deliver something, which is is fine, but you're only going to get to a certain level. And you've never really had that problem of saying no to business opportunity, have you? I'm actually useless at most things. (laughs) And and I think that's a real skill. Like I actually hate that part of it. I'm not interested in technically doing the work. I'm interested in how we can get the work done and compete from a business level, not a Gee, Tim, you're an excellent electrician. You're an excellent plumber. You're an excellent lawyer. But I'm very interested in all of those businesses around how you can build those businesses and have the people who are great at it doing the technical work. This is a big issue with micro businesses. They see their whole business as their ability and skill, and they are totally limited to that. That's why they never really grow. What you've just said illustrates that difference in that if you're a builder, everything is solved with a hammer. So I'm focused on the technical aspect, whereas you as a business owner are taking that one step further to look at what's the problem that needs to be solved and how can we use whatever tool to get to that, to solve that problem. That's exactly the difference between a technician 
to a business owner, and then we'll t- maybe we'll briefly talk about it at the end, which is how do venture capitalists work? How how can they possibly have skill sets when they've never been involved with a certain type of business yet they can make the most money from it? The insight of investors is that sounds like a good idea. How do I seek out a specialist partner or someone who's a genius in that area and get their view of it? But they still make money from it. So this is the difference between making money as a business owner or an entrepreneur versus a technician who's self-employed. You really have to consider, what am I? In this zero to one million mark, this is half the problem with most business owners who struggle with growth because they're limiting their world by their technical skill. And it's not that that's not a great place to start, but the people who have been the heroes in those industries that go, oh, but they were that web person. They started on the tools. Yes, they were. And then they sought out some business skills or got people involved that could scale the business because they didn't have that skill. So they were equally entrepreneurial by getting in the right people to fill the gaps of building a business. They weren't just better at building websites, but everyone who's technical based looks up to them like, I just work harder and I just do better websites or I just do better this, we'll grow. No, you won't. That's a different business. This entrepreneurial journey is about how do I grow and put the right pieces in place in order to get to the next level, not how do I personally do it? It seems like we're talking about two different issues. One, that there is people that are closing themselves off to opportunity because it doesn't meet their skill set that they have. And the other one, which we've talked about before, and people pivoting too early by chasing other opportunities without staying focused. One of the questions that comes up a lot in these areas is people saying yes to too many clients, but they're not making any money. Which of those areas does that fall into for you? I think it's all intertwined together, which is when you're saying yes to too many clients that aren't giving you any type of, I guess, proportional reward. So one of the challenges a lot of this, this category business has is they just don't have the margins there or they don't have the volume set up yet to get the margins they need. So they haven't enjoyed the volume that's going to give them some economies of scale where they can reduce some of their costs and actually make the margin. But as long as that's part of the strategic plan, that's okay because you're self-funding this, you, you understand it. But most people don't have that plan, which is at what volume point do we start getting the margins we need or the volume point is so unrealistic for where they are that it's going to take them a decade to get there. And if it's going to take you 10 years to get there and you're a small business that's self-funded, you're probably not the one that's going to do that. Or you need to seek out funding if it's a real opportunity. But it's understanding where you're at at that point in order to see where your pathway is. Where am I going to start making money? We've been, I guess, is it trolling through a few of the, I guess, small... Scrolling uh, is probably... Or trolling, (laughs) Fisher. Yeah, I'm thinking trolling, but we're scrolling and trolling through just some different business networks. And it's very funny because when you've got a little bit of experience and you've worked with a lot of businesses, which is obviously we have with our performance consultancy, you don't need to know too much about the business to know exactly where they're at. And some of the comments I read in small business forums you realize just by the question they're asking how much trouble that business is going to be in. And it's not about learning and being vulnerable and asking questions, but you see someone's process on how they deal with the most basic challenge and you realize that they don't have the muscle right now to do anything more sophisticated. Because even the fact that you would write a paragraph on this challenge you're having that basically you could Google, you realize they're not really business owners They shouldn't be playing this game. And it's brutal to say that, but you have to understand this is an awareness thing. So as you start to get more experience, you get more awareness. There's always a different level, but you need to create awareness through the experience to go, right, this isn't working. What's the next step? Who do I need to speak to? Where do I gather some more awareness or information in order to make decisions to get to the next level? So if your business isn't working right now the way you want it, what are you doing to seek out the answer? And doing more of the same thing or getting more volume of things that don't work, well, that's just stupid. It doesn't make sense. It's not logical. 
And sometimes because you're in it, you can't actually see exactly what you're talking about, that I could just Google it because you're not looking for an answer, you're looking for support. This is where you start to look at this idea of who am I going to to get the information that's going to help me get to the next level? It's very easy for us to have been through it all to say, here's your ideal client, here's how you grow, and at the end of it, you keep changing and moving and it all keeps getting better. But the reality is if you're not surrounding yourself with people who are helping you to see this, who are allowing you to see it will actually be okay if you say no to one client because we've been there before, we've done that before. It's a really lonely period to actually come to that decision by yourself. And that's why the interwebs is so great because you can find like-minded people. You almost have to find out that you're not alone in it, that everyone has been through exactly what you're talking about before because that's how small business grows into a bigger business. So I want to be respectful here because small business, we've all started there. So most of you know my story too. It's self-funded, growing businesses, failing at businesses, building businesses, starting to get there. When I look at some of these forums and Facebook pages and LinkedIn groups, the people who are advising or giving advice, you've got to ask the question, why are they giving advice? They've never grown a business past whatever. You look, you click back and do a bit of trolling, you realize you've got to be really careful where you're seeking out information. Because I think a lot of people who engage in these forums, it's the Lonely Business Owners Club. And I feel for it because we've all been there. As Lana said, it is very lonely at times, but you're seeking out other people who are in the same situation for advice. So you'll never break the habit. You need to be seeking out people that have broken through those problems and gone consistently to the next level or consistently to the next level of growth. A lot of people who are what I'd call the fans of these that are the most active in these forums are generally the ones struggling the most. They're giving the most advice because they're not, you can tell they're not valuing their time and you have to look at these things and you have to be very careful. But I just want to make sure that when people are listening that are feeling like they need a hand, don't go to the lowest form of advice, which is public forums on the internet. It's just not going to work. So for someone, and Lana, you brought this up, it is lonely at that position and it is scary. If you're someone that is saying yes to a lot of clients and you're not making any money from it, you don't have the right plan sitting behind you, obviously, because you're not making strategic choices. It's not just small, by the way, Nigel. I know we've said this a couple of times. Even when you're a big business, it doesn't mean that some big contracts aren't not going to be good for you. They're going to lose you money. It's the same as in small business, doing too many clients not make any money. In bigger businesses, you can still take the wrong contract that loses you money, except you're contractually obligated to fulfill it. Now, when I was in developing, you got to be really careful with the type of contracts. There's a reason there are specialty lawyers for builders and developers suing each other every single project. It's almost part of the game and people factor in those bites in bigger contracts. And they've got the team around them to help them advise. But in this space, talking about that zero to one mil, some people may not have that team and they feel that they're in that cycle. How is a way to break that cycle? You plan. You need to know where you're at and you need to know where you're going. Because most people say, I'm just working harder and I'm not making any more money. You say, great, show me where you're trying to get to. I just want to make more money. Well, that's not a plan. And they're the things we have to start looking at is, where am I trying to go? What are the things that I'm trying to affect to get there and know that I'm getting there on the right path? Lana, we had some breakthroughs in our companies when we started to plan them better and we would set our quarterly goals and things like that because even the hard work during the quarter wasn't difficult because we knew why we were doing it and we were working hard to make money even if it wasn't at the margin we needed because we just needed that free cash flow. It went from Oh, we're doing so much work and not make any money to, no, it's okay. We just need the cash flow because that's going to give us the bit we need for the next part or next evolution of our company. And I know we spoke about plans on last week's episode, so feel free to jump into that one. But I think to the point made before is that if you're constantly relying on yourself, then you're not going to grow. You will have the same clients. Yes, you can put up your prices but you're not going to grow to the level that you need to. So my way of doing it would be I'd have a look at the industry that I'm in and see where there are things that I can add on to my service. Okay, I I know digital back to front. If I'm in social media, can I do e-newsletters? If I'm a branding agency, can I add on social media? If I'm a plumber, is there an additional service that I can add on? So it's how can I add something on that I can't do personally 
but I can see if there's a way that it will add value to my client. Once you see how I can add value to my client, you then almost have to take the first step of finding the person who can do that. And once you break through, I'm not needed and I can't be needed, it becomes much easier because a lot of that ego or a lot of that fear is gone. Because once you see one person doing it, you learn. And then the next steps become much easier from the learning. You can read all you want, you can talk all you want, but you actually have to do it to learn from it, to see that it will be okay. And to understand, as I said, that everyone's gone through it because business is the same across the board. It just has ebbs and flows. It's finding that customer and having a journey that they're going to have with you. And when you become more sophisticated, you might even decide that as a lot of businesses do, you're happy to lose money on the first transaction if you've got a long tail business model. So things that Lana said, we can have these other products and services that might be higher value, easier work for you so you can make different margin on them. But in order to get that client, you need to get them up front doing something else first. And the idea is to keep reselling to a client that already trusts you, that you understand their problem better, you've been working together and you can keep adding value. But the value adds are the, where the margins can be. Not that you can't make money up front, but some business actually acquire clients at a loss maker up front, knowing that most of their clients go on this journey and they're going to buy two, three, four, ten, a hundred new things off them over their lifetime working together. Businesses plan that, but these aren't even in the awareness of smaller business. This is, I guess, when you're starting to get to the next level, and let's call it the one to five, one to 10 mil. You're starting to get some free cash flow. You're starting to have choices and you're starting to decide what your business actually does. How do you navigate this period and continue to grow in a profitable and smart way as opposed to, yep, we're making more money. You're actually making less as a net profit at the end of the day. Now, with a lot of small businesses, one of the great benefits is that there is a bunch of opportunity. I remember starting off when we were doing the video production company, we could go down this route of fashion videos. We could go down this route of educational videos. And because I'm so excited about it, those opportunities came to me. The excitement's the bit that actually is the problem with most entrepreneurs is we're all very positive people. Everything's good and everything will work and we can make money from everything. And if everyone sees that, they get attracted to it and they go, oh, you should do this, this, and this. And you go, yes, I should. And you run off down that path. And then all of a sudden you find out that you're in the middle of Europe the uh, first no, four months. No, <laughs> let me pull you back there, Nigel. It's actually when Lana sent me off to live in Bali to, uh, <laughs> to, to sign up luxury hotels for our social media company, which I, oh, I forgot about that. Would Lana. you like <laughs> to tell the people listening how many hotels you signed up? We had a lot in the pipeline, but the Bali lifestyle became a little bit too much for me to manage. So scoreboard says zero. Sorry, Nigel, continue. <laughs> hey, listen, the company may have lost, but I had my Bucks party in Bali, so I was completely happy. <laughs> You're welcome. That's called a secondary game, Nigel. So, But that's exactly right. And I think that experience So you're is, just going to cut off Nigel's question? Is no, this? <laughs> I want to go straight into it because as he said, when you're excited about things, you start to make decisions that aren't very strategic because you have a go. And we started to free up some cash flow. And the first thing we did was, well, we want to expand internationally. Bali seems like a good idea. And we went over there, but basically we set it back 12 months because it probably wasn't the best use of the cash flow right then in terms of resources because we were still relatively untapped. I think this is the experience of a lot of businesses, which is so much opportunity and then you start to get some free cash flow. One of the key things also is it also took the key driver of innovation, not only out of the conversation, but geographically out of the country. So how can you influence from your best area when you actually don't have those just a minutes, the walk-bys, those kind of things, your, your attention focused completely somewhere else? Absolutely. And it wasn't moving overseas. In this case, I moved overseas and Lana stayed here and we were running the production company, Nigel, so we had a lot of things on. But a lot of the time, you know, I was central to a lot of the decision-making. Is that the smartest strategic move to take out someone who should essentially be playing a CEO role in a couple of companies or at least not an advisory role? Should they not be in the country? Is that the best use of resources, time, energy, or give you the most chance for success? Which obviously the answer is no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but we learn. 
But this is the point, I guess, for small businesses and, and this is the danger that you have. You do so much work to get to a point where you're starting to get some free cash flow and you've got all these ideas you want to do. And as soon as you start to generate the ability to do it, you try and do everything at once or you aim at the things that are sexy to do as opposed to the things that are strategically probably the right thing to do for your next step because you start to feel like you've made it as soon as you start to get some free cash flow. But actually all you've got right then is free cash flow. It's your ability to take some pressure off what you're currently doing and start to bring in those people as we discussed in previous podcasts that can help as specialists in different areas in your business to start exponentially growing those areas. Strategic and sexy generally aren't closely aligned because the strategic is often the boring because <laughs> oh, it's repetitive. fashion yeah. or creative, <laughs> it's, you know. But the actual, the business of fashion is not the sexy part of it. Actually getting the line out, getting those kind of things, that's the boring strategic, this is what we have to do to achieve that social media snapshot at the other end, the sexy. But a lot of people may get trapped into chasing the sexy opportunity and missing a lot of the steps in the way. Particularly when we used to, you know, shoot a lot of fashion stuff. The people who were really killing it in fashion weren't necessarily the designers at front and center working the catwalk. It was the distribution agents that were, <laughs> or the, the website distribution or whatever it is. There's people making money in different areas of those type of businesses. It's not necessarily the public sexy face of going to fashion shows, getting your picture in the papers and all that sort of stuff. And that's what you've got to probably understand in your own business, which is what is my next step when I have some free cash flow? And the exciting bit, Lana, as we've done before, is when you don't have the cash flow but the opportunity is good enough, there's always people who can help you fund it because they see what you're trying to do and realize all you need is cash injection to go to the next level. Because sometimes you need to have a cash injection for the next level of growth. But most people think they need that well and truly before they're actually ready for a cash injection. We had the option for a cash injection and we decided instead we'd give equity to team members and that actually grew us to a higher level. We should have done both. We should have done both. <laughs> and that's why I love this question and this topic, which we get quite a bit from clients around, but what do I actually spend on? And you talk yeah. about strategy versus sexy. Sometimes it's, I'm just going to get myself off the tools because that's what I deserve. But it is this the boredom of having a strategic plan also means that you have to learn new skills and the skill that I am, I'm very good at spending. You are. You're it's excellent. a very, very good skill set. Of <laughs> I've opened the door to way too many of your <laughs> online purchases, not to disagree with that. Yes, you, you have. You are an award winner. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of spending money in the smart places and the smart place will always come back to your strategy. And so we made the decision to not take money. instead. We decided to invest in human capital and that's a version of spending because we decided to do it a certain way. For people in a smaller business, for people who are probably sitting there saying, oh, I've got cash, now's my chance to make it happen. Because you and I actually haven't spoken about this. What's your experience in spending? I'm a poor spender. Terrible. I don't spend. You are a, no, you're a great buyer when you buy. <laughs> I'm a great buyer as long as there's a filter of this is good for the business. <laughs> the only time I've been able to really convince myself of a bit of a, oh, that may not have been for the business, buying a pinball machine for the office in inverted commas, but <laughs> things like that that a little bit, I'm not a good spender on myself because I actually, there's not a lot of things I truly want. But you do spend in the business. Uh, in the business, but I'm and you're loose as a goose in the business. Like if we're doing something, I'm happy to spend a lot quickly. So pretty much to anyone listening, don't do that? I think so. And you have to be pretty on top of your finances and understand why. But also this is the point, isn't it? You put the team around you to protect yourself from the enthusiasm of me as an owner. I want to do things, experience things and win different areas of my business. So I'm going to say yes to things that I believe in. Now that's why you have a team around you. You need to have that friction between people saying no, because if I had no no's, we probably, it would just be a matter of time before I ran into a problem that hey. was too big. Fair enough. I never said no. You, you're not the no. I just gave you a priority list and said if you've yeah. got five priorities and if you've got a different priority, something comes off the priority list. Yeah, which is <laughs> a structure around in capital investment or entrepreneurial investment. And you have to keep investing back in your business. You, you must. And this is the thing I think personally, Lana, we made a decision early on in our relationship that we would live off 50% of our earnings, whatever it was. 
So 50% had to cover our lifestyle, which we call our daily lifestyle, but 50% had to be saved for investments or opportunities that are financially driven. So if it's buying an investment property, if it's buying shares, if it's investing in a business, if it's buying a business. Now, it's not that easy in the early days to live off 50%. It's actually quite difficult. The challenge we had was we had to make decisions financially and it wasn't because the businesses weren't doing well either. We invest more aggressively back into our businesses. People would be shocked at the amount we don't take out. And this is probably what I learned from you because as oh, I said, wonderful. I'm, let's, I'm a very Let's take this slow and I want you to really <laughs> tell me about the lesson. Okay. So <laughs> if we are decorating the house, Tim needs to see the full picture. He has to see where every couch will go, where every chair will go, everything. I will find one piece and I will know where it will go and I will happily build around it. And this is just a really good analogy for the spending side of things. Both of them work. At the end of the day, you're going to decorate the house or the office, whatever it might be. But the friction between Tim and I coming to this understanding of this is how we both operate is related to exactly what we're talking about with spending. Is if there's not an end goal and a plan, if you don't have a strategy and you don't know cash flow and forecasting and all those bits, Tim is not a happy camper. Tim cannot see the return on investment for every dollar spent. If I look at who are the best people in the world that could build a room or design a room, interior designer, an architect, whatever it is, how do they start? They plan out everything first. So why would I try and do it the opposite way to the best <laughs> in the world? Why would I see the model of the best people in the world and then come back and go, I know what I'll do. I'll do the opposite. Can you hear his anger? It makes, <laughs> it makes no sense to me. Not that there aren't different ways to skin a cat. And that's the bit that we all need to learn is people have different processes and their home's different too. Maybe it's a part of the experience of just enjoying that, that maybe <laughs> I'm not considering. Me, I want the result, not the process of the result, which is the journey and the destination. But in things like that, to me, it's easy to do. It's, but it's the same with the business, really. I'm not going to spend unless I see the plan in the business of why we're spending. I don't just say, let's quickly buy a whole bunch of stuff and see how it goes. It's like, I want to get here. This is what we're going to need. So that's an easy decision. For anyone who thinks that I've lost the plot with my house analogy, change the couch for an account manager. Change the table for a digital marketer or a plumber. If I was to say I'm going to put an account manager in, I better know what the rest of my team looks like before I start hiring, before I start spending on an individual, before I buy a pinball machine. Because all of that money that comes through has to go to the end goal, which is building the business as fast as possible. Fair enough? Absolutely. If you don't have that structure put in place, how do you know when to put in what person and what is the plan of doing that? So all of this becomes stressful because you make a bit of money and then you have that common feedback or the common question people come up with, what do I do with the money? You go, why are you asking? Oh, because you don't have a plan in place. You don't have an idea where you're heading. Of course, it's stressful because every day you wake up without any sort of focus, you're just trying to make more. And this is when it becomes really stressful because you're constantly asking that question, what do I do now? For us, we've got a strategic plan for the next 20 years. It will adjust according to how we perform in each quarter, each year, whatever it is. But we have a guide of where we want to head to both professionally and personally. So we don't always ask the question, now what do we spend on? And probably to be fair, we've got maybe five or six pieces in our plan. So if it comes to spending and back to the question of what do I spend on, we've probably got five or six things that we know would be the next element we would spend on. So if it's for an investment, it's based on, okay, we're ready for that investment now. What are the economic conditions now? So obviously with a pandemic or something like that, you might need to adjust that because there might be a faster way to get to where you want to go based on the opportunities that are presented at the moment. Well, I guess what I'm looking at here is that what you spend on has to be able to be moved. So if you're saying I have got five things that I could possibly put money into, when you get that free cash flow or when you get that amount of money, you want to have a look at those five things and say, which is going to grow me faster? What is it that's going to get me to the next level? And based on what we were talking about before, it might be a new product or service that you haven't thought of that you don't have to do yourself. That could actually be the thing that grows you faster. It's a really good point. You should allocate money in your budget personally and professionally to run experiments. So a portion of that might be higher risk experiments. You need to allow for that. And that's the point when a lot of people feel that they've got a lot of free cash flow. 
when you actually look under the hood, you realize they're probably not doing a few of the things they should be doing in order to get the business in the way of a new opportunity. They wait till there's cash and then go, right, I want to dump it in something. I want to now do something different. I go, no, no, that's a process. It's a process of experimenting. It's a process of trying things. It's making smaller investments over the time, not waiting to dump a lump sum into something and then just to see if it works. It's progressing a lot of things and then seeing something that's got some legs and going harder with that. It's probably the funniest thing about watching you do business is that you've got this plan that is in your head. You've got the seven or eight steps that no one else knows is coming. So as soon as that the money's put into it and it hits, you're often running in the next direction. I don't know if that's a positive or a negative because you want people to understand the plan so they can help contribute. But a lot of the time, particularly in smaller businesses or when you have a smaller team, there's not a lot that those people can add at that time. So you actually know what you want to get to. So you just take it. Well, I personally just take it on myself going, I know what I need. People who would be on the outside looking go, why would you be spending on that? And they go, oh, that makes so much sense a year down the track. I don't have the time to explain it. Unless it's directly affecting your workday, then absolutely. But not everyone gets the right to understand the strategic plan. If they've got nothing to contribute with a smaller company, you should be executing what you can do in your role as best as possible. That's your job right now. Also, none of us really need the 20-year plan. We need the 12-month plan. That's yeah. what we execute and, to. And quarter plan, basically. <laughs> yeah. The quarter tasks that are going to get us to the 12 months, that get us to the two-year, the three-year, the five-year. And It's funny with some of the um, strategic planning we do with smaller businesses how often the plans hit exactly what they predict over five years, even though the process of getting there is up, down, sideways and back to front, but actually knowing where you want to go to, and this is that whole thing on goal setting, it always works. But looking back in reflection, you realize, wow, there is some power in having that clarity. And I think that's where a lot of, and particularly in this conversation, a lot of smaller businesses, we're still doing the SMEs up to 10 mil, they don't do this well at all. And it's something we have to keep reinforcing all our clients is you must have a plan. Your job is to execute a plan, not grow a business, even though growing the business is part of that plan. But you need to look at my job is to get this project done. So you guys are very good at spending money when (laughs) it is targeted. A lot of people, though, and I think you are a little bit of outliers, particularly in that smaller business sector, we can't ignore the fact that there's a lot of baggage that comes around money. We spend all of those first years trying to grow money and grasping whatever we can, saying yes to things that we shouldn't because we need that cash. When you've actually got that money, I've seen a lot of business owners that have a fear around investing it. So it's not whether it's just a good idea, it's a bad idea. They can see a good idea and the fear of going backwards holds them back from taking it. What would you say to someone like that? Well, the thing for me personally was I look at working in my business as I'm the CEO of the business and I get paid a wage for that. The second thing is when I take money out of the business above my wage, that's a dividend to the investor. And I might be the sole investor at that time, but I need to remove myself from thinking it's my money. It's the business's money and the business has decided to pay a dividend to the investor. And so the baggage around money is actually when you think it's all yours. And to me, none of it's mine. I get paid a wage from my business to run the business and that's what I get to live off. Anything above that is different, but that's a decision from the business. For me, I have to make that mental shift because then I'm not, every time we're we're making an investment, I'm not worried about, oh my God, I'm losing this much money potentially, or I'm doing this. I look at it as, oh, the business needs to make that decision and needs to fund that. That's what it is. It's not a choice between a new plasma at home or something in the business. It's That's the business's money for business. But even in the early stages, money was short at home. I didn't take it out anyway because it wasn't my money. The business still has to run. Whereas I think a lot of people don't make that distinction. They look at it, their business and all that money's theirs. That's still fine, but I found that too much baggage because then I was less bullish about making investments because I'd look at it as the money I was spending to do this or do that or whatever. 
do you say it the same way, Lana? Is that because we've never actually probably spoken about this? Probably we should have prior to being married, by the way. There's a number of these conversations that have come up on the podcast. Do you know what? In the next podcast, relationship talks. Are you actually posting these or is this just some sort of pseudo-psychological session that we've booked here? I believe it's called evidence. (laughs) I, well, actually, I'm very good at spending money and I don't have a lot of cash issues in terms of mentally. I would say I'm the opposite. I think everything will be okay. Money will come in. We'll always make more. Not always the most secure brain to have. No, not easy to live with either. Not not great to live with. (laughs) I find it interesting that when a company starts making money, usually the owners on the smaller side decide that they've got the right to take all the cash out. I deserve this. I've worked hard. It's mine. There's a thing in finance called a balance sheet. It's not your money. You have worked. You maybe have got a wage. You're building something for the future. A lot of the time it's for the hope that you won't have to work for the rest of your life. My personal opinion is if you start making money and then you go and give it all to yourself, then you're building yourself a job. You're not building yourself a company. On the flip side, to your point, Nigel, if you start making money and then you're almost, you've got a fear of spending it, then probably you're not the right person to run it. You're not the right CEO because, again, it all comes back to the strategy the mandate is to grow the business or to execute the plan. And you most likely can't do that without money. So I look at things around money very logically. You've made money in order to grow a business. So make sure that you keep growing the business. Of course, give yourself benefit, look at dividends, but it has to be in line, boringly, (laughs) with the strategy that Tim was talking about. Because without that strategy, then you don't know what's coming next. You don't know how much you can take out. And you also don't know how much should stay in the business. As Lana said, it's okay to take money out. That's the point of also us working. We, it, it's an important thing. But you need to balance your personal risk in running a business. So if you own the business outright, there's a risk associated with owning a business. It's a fast-growing asset class, but there is a risk. And so you need to work out when you start taking out different amounts of money to start building your personal wealth. And if you, you know, however you protect that, if you do protect it, whatever you're doing, but you need to speak to financial advisors on how to best protect your personal wealth or your family's wealth. You need to start thinking about those structures, but there's a total balance between potentially where your business is hitting a maturity level because you might decide, you know what, this is the type of business I want to run. It's fine. And all I do now is take out the full dividend and keep investing in assets or spending it. Whatever you do with your own money is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But the constant battle is how much should I keep in the business versus what I should take out in terms of the growth of my business versus the growth of my personal wealth and creating some security around my family wealth. One of the interesting things we deal with, Lana, with our investment fund is baby boomers specifically, for many, many years, they've subconsciously put the cue in the rack and they haven't a limited growth on purpose, but they're happy to just keep sustaining the current level of the business. And there's nothing wrong with that. But they could have grown if they wanted to, but they've made the decision to move the money that they would have improved the business or you know, capital injections in different areas, trying different experiments, all the things that cash flow and money in the business does for you. They've taken it out and said, no, we just want to build assets for my retirement. And this is the same decision you need to make as soon as you start making free cash flow. You need to work out how much of that am I going to personally take out regularly? And what is the trigger for that? Because we use some triggers here, which is if we hit this, we're taking out everything above that. But at some stage, you need to work that out. You have to work out where am I at firstly in my business life cycle and where I'm at in my life. If you've never put anything away, maybe it's time to mine more money out of your business because you actually want to limit the risk of your business wealth because you need to build up your personal. But if you're young, you're in your 20s, you're having your first swing at it. For me, you know, I've said this story many times, in my 20s, we're starting to make some money, but I wouldn't care. I'd spend it all on reinvesting in business stuff to try and see if I could accelerate growth by 20 years. Missed a couple of times pretty heavy, as in way too big a risks in the wrong areas. In your 20s? <laughs> well, at least now we've got something behind us, but I still like <laughs> Wednesday, I believe, wasn't it? <laughs> well, that's not a risk now, but it's, it's understanding this and you shouldn't feel guilty pulling money out of the business. That's the point of you growing a company is you can 
have some personal wealth creation. And I think it's important. It's not all or nothing. I know where a client we're used to service that they'd gotten to a point in their business life where they were trying to exit the business. They were bringing in a new GM to help grow the business at the same time, but they went, this is what we as the owners are taking out every year. And then this is the capital that's left to grow. So they managed to find a kind of a halfway point or a balancing point. Yeah. It's commonly in succession where people understand what they need or want the business to give them from a personal wealth creation. And then they start bringing in others that might have the enthusiasm or desire to keep growing the business. And you can incentivize that in that case is the owners knew exactly what they needed to earn and what they wanted to earn over the next decade. And so I think for this is, and and getting back to your point, Lana, is what is it for you? And what is your ambition around growing a company? And then what is the cash that's going to be required? Because there's also options, by the way. It doesn't have to be self-funded. This is what a lot of people don't understand. You might decide to take out the working capital in your business and bring on partners, bring on investors. You might actually have to bring on investors if you've got an ambition. So it's not actually money that you're not getting access to. You're actually finding people who can accelerate it, but their buy-in is obviously their cash for equity or, or a return or leveraging through banks and stuff. We're talking a lot at the moment about self-funding, breaking through these barriers of when you don't have any free cash flow, when you start to get free cash flow, and then when you're starting to get consistent free cash flows, what am I supposed to do? But at the end of the day, you've got options at each of those levels, but particularly in this one where you've got a choice of, should I take that million out or should I keep it in the business? You might decide that I'm going to take it out, but also I think I'm going to start to find different ways to fund the growth of my business by reducing the risk. And a lot of the time you see with IPOs, that's what the owners are actually doing. They've got their business to a point where if they take the company public, they're starting to release some of that built up equity and cash, which is they've been reinvesting for so many years that they get a payout and they can start to enjoy some of the things of having a big lump sum gives you, but still the business funds itself. Now you're a shareholder. You may still have a position, but that's one of the exit strategies is why people float companies because they get the working capital from the IPO but also get to reduce their risk and start to get some of the benefit of all their personal wealth locked into the company as an asset. That's an option if you understand the option. (laughs) What are you laughing at? You previously mentioned investors and it's something that I think is interesting to people, especially in business, because they see it as the the, the place to be. If I can get to investment, I've, I've made it. Yeah, celebrating raising money. That is a very big (laughs) problem in society at the moment. Yay, we raised $10 million. Three months later, we're filing for bankruptcy. (laughs) Positive. Um, Everything we're talking about is around spending cash wisely, knowing the right places. What about investment? Taking investment and the risk or the reward around it, how do you see that? For me, it's the fastest path to getting to the plan that you've got in place for the company. The first stage is how do I invest as much as I can in energy, effort and resources to get the business to a point that if I seek out investment at that time, that my asset is worth as much as it could be at that point of time. I want to make sure that when I go to market, if I go to market, I'm giving myself the best return on the energy up until that point. And that's from day one. The question then becomes, well, do I need investment? No, but at least at that point, you've got the best possible company you can have by your personal resources and the way you've been able to run it. At that point, then you look at what is the best way to get to the next point in my business that I want to get to, the next part of the plan. And there is a million different ways to get investment. It's not necessarily selling equity. There are different ways of leveraging. There are different ways of borrowing. There's different ways of doing a whole lot of different structures. You can potentially even license. That's the exciting bit for me. But the bit that I think people get caught up in is why am I worrying about that point in the process when I should be worrying about how do I bring my shiny business to people who can help fund the next level in the best possible shape? It might be generating solid cash flows, it might have a good client list, it might have a good IP that's built up, might have a great team, you're going to be able to negotiate a better deal than bringing a dog to an investor and going, just needs more money. Great. 
but it looks like it's a lot more risk because all you've managed to do is bring it to this point in this condition. And I think that's lost on a lot of maybe less experienced business owners because they just think, oh, if only I had an extra million, I'd fix all these problems. And anyone with any sort of experience in investing goes, no, the reason you think that is because you're not that experienced and you're a much higher risk because you should have been able to fix that by investing in your business earlier on. So already you'll get a worse deal. You don't want to dilute all your energy and effort up until that point by not having your business in the best possible shape to negotiate the best possible deal. Fun, isn't it? Taking money out. <laughs> I'm just thinking, is that this is one of those good topics. Like, should I take money out? By the way, great problem. And if you're having that problem, well done. And just remember this. I, we should just probably finish on this. You can always put money back in. So <laughs> don't worry too much if you screw it up. You can also put money back into your business. And I think that's the balance that as you start growing faster, getting bigger, dealing with more zeros, you'll learn this naturally and you'll put some advisors around you that can really help you with specifics on what's the best for you and how do you leverage your risk at that point in your business life and your personal life at that point because obviously your personal life changes and you need to adjust your risk profiles for what you want to achieve in life. Nigel, Lana, great chatting and um, do it all again next week. Bye. Well, that's us done for another week, team. I hope you enjoyed it and thanks for listening. Now, I hope you gained some clarity around how you can view the opportunities that are presenting in your life. As always, you can head on over to backable.ai to access all the downloadables we've put together. And if you enjoyed this week's podcast, please don't forget to like, subscribe, and if you have a minute, please leave a review. Now, if you want to stay up to date with all things Backable and Philodobone, why not join our closed Facebook group and get connected with some like-minded, action-oriented business people? Also, you can follow us on one or all of the platforms you can find in the show description below. That's all from us for now. Have a great week and we look forward to speaking with you next week. Bye.